focus on our passage today, as we've just read it, is on Jesus describing to us, I think, some building blocks for how to build kingdom community among God's people. And it's never easy to, to build community uh, among any group of people, particularly even God's people. And I'll tell you a story about this monastery. There's a monastery. It was uh, a very remote monastery, and they monks there followed a rigid vow of silence. The vow could only be broken once a year on Christmas Day. And only one monk would be allowed to speak on Christmas Day and then another 365 days of silence. And so in 1997, as the minutes show in this monastery, Brother Thomas had his turn to speak, and here's what he said. I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. And then silence for 365 days. The next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and he said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I truly despise them. And now 365 days of silence. The next Christmas, 1999, Brother Paul rose and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. It's not easy, even in a monastery, where they say one sentence every year to have unity, to build community together. And I think this is the focus of this section on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to give us three building blocks. Now, these are not the only things to say about community, but they are three building blocks in order for God's people, who are now part of his kingdom, how we are supposed to live together in this kingdom. And I would say it's, it's not simply uh, what we ought to do here as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it has application beyond that to your workplace, to your classroom, to your community group that you're a part of, to your neighborhood. And so what we want to look at is these three important uh, building blocks uh, that are so crucial uh, for us to put into place so that we can reflect the beauty of our king and the beauty of his kingdom. Let's look at the first building block, and it's this. Jesus claims to have authority to direct our lives. You might miss this if you just read this section of Scripture real quickly. Let's look at it again. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus is referring to uh, clearly one of the uh, commandments, the Ten Commandments. This commandment would have been part of the moral will and moral law of God. Do not murder. Now, when Jesus says, um, you've, you've heard it said, I think he's, in some sense, describing how the Pharisees and scribes interpreted, thou shalt not murder. They tended to focus on the external. You know, if, if nobody dies, if nobody's murdered, uh, then we've fulfilled the law. 
I mentioned this last week, right? You know, I mean, I, you know, I've looked back through the minutes of our congregational meetings. No one's been murdered at Stonehill Church. But Jesus has the audacity to say this in verse 22. You've heard it said, you know, this is the command, you shall not murder. You, you've seen how the scribes and Pharisees interpret it in sort of an external way. But Jesus has the audacity to say in verse 22, but I say to you, and he goes on, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What Jesus does, and you might miss this because it's sort of subtle. Jesus basically says, because I am who I am, because I am Jesus, because I am God, fully God and fully man, I have the authority to explain and define what God's law is because I am God himself. You've heard it said, there's the law. Focusing on the interpretation of that law by the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, but I say to you. Jesus is assuming that he has the authority as the king, as the God, as the king of this kingdom. He has the authority to command us. He has authority to direct us. And I think, as we'll see throughout this text, (laughs) that's part of the rub. Probably for all of us. See, it's easy even for believers. I mean, we love Jesus. We look at the the narrative of the gospel accounts. I mean, Jesus is an amazing person. He heals the sick. He's hanging out with broken people. He's kind. He's loving. He has compassion. And we can forget that he is God himself. And when he says, but I say to you, he is claiming deity for himself. And he does it in sort of a matter-of-fact way. He doesn't sit there and say, no, no, listen, guys, remember, I'm God. He just says, you've heard it said, that's the law, that's the way the scribes and Pharisees interpret it, but I say unto you. And what I say to you is definitive and authoritative. This is interesting. If you've... Uh, if any of you read Russell Moore, Russell Moore has uh, written a number of very provocative articles. And not too long ago, he wrote this article about why, uh, you know, scores and scores of people are leaving the church. And what he describes is, is, you know, back, you know, 100 years ago, people would leave the church, and they still do for these reasons, because they lose confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Or they don't want to follow the commands of Scripture. Or, 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 or they start to wonder if the Bible can be trusted. Now that still happens today. But what is fascinating is the numbers of people leaving the church are not leaving because they're sort of dissatisfied with Jesus. They're leaving the church in large numbers because they don't think the church, the followers of Jesus, are actually trying to follow Jesus. And I think this text gets to that a lot. Have we forgotten as God's people who are part of this new kingdom that Jesus is the king? And when he says, but I say unto you, he's telling you what God has to say to us. Now I suspect there are others, 
Maybe you're online this morning. Maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you're seeking spiritual renewal of some kind. Maybe you're actually considering Jesus. And again, this is, this is an interesting problem with Jesus, right? Because most people, when you read the Gospels and you see the kind of things that Jesus taught, you, 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 you can't help but love Jesus. I mean, are you going to complain with love your enemies, that teaching? Can you imagine what Washington, D.C. would be like if everybody did what Jesus said, love your enemies? I might even pay attention to politics again. That happened. I'd probably have a heart attack first, but then... I mean, who's going to complain when Jesus talks about how money shouldn't be the center of your life? Love your neighbor as yourself. We love the teaching of Jesus. The problem with Jesus, though, is that his teaching and his his self-understanding as being God are all intertwined. You can't separate Jesus, oh, he's a good teacher, but then deny the, the other things he said about himself so casually almost that... That he says and claims to be God. And, and it's interesting how Jesus does this. He, 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 he has all these statements in the Gospels. We don't have time to look at them all. But, but he has all these statements in the, in the Gospels where it's almost like he casually indicates that he is claiming to be God. One of my favorites, I think it's in Luke, um, Luke 10, I believe, when Jesus is... Um, talking about demon possession. He's talking with his disciples. There's been some real spiritual warfare that's taking place. He's talking about demon possession. Out of the blue, Jesus simply says, yeah, I saw Lucifer fall from the from heavens. I, fa- I saw him fall to the earth from the, from the heavens. And he's like, what? You think about what? what? You, I mean, it's almost like Jesus was saying, yeah, I remember when, when Satan was kicked out of heaven. Boy, that was something. Just casually says it. He's claiming to be God. And that forces everyone in a very difficult position because you can't really divorce the great teaching that almost everybody recognizes as good with his self-understanding that he was God. I know many of you are familiar with this quote from C.S. Lewis. In describing this dilemma that you have, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. People who say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And my fear for even us as God's people that we forget that all of Jesus' teaching is predicated on the fact that he is 
God himself. And therefore, everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth is binding on us, particularly as God's people, it's binding on everyone. Jesus said, you've heard it said from all, do not murder, but I say unto you. That's the first building block that Jesus claims to have this authority, the authority of God. And therefore, the rest of this text, along with the rest of chapter 5 in Matthew 5, he's going to do this uh, six times. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Is he, this text is not simply a good idea. It's not simply a suggestion. It's not simply a good idea for God's people if you want to. What Jesus is saying about building community is binding on all of us, particularly those of us who know Christ by grace and have entered into this new kingdom. Jesus is the king, and he's telling us how we ought to live. Now, there's a second building block, and that is this, is that murder starts in your heart. Murder starts in your heart. When it says, thou shalt not murder, it's not talking about physical taking of a life. It's certainly talking about that. It's talking about much more. Let's look at what Jesus says, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus begins to do, because he is the king and because he is God, he begins to define for us what is it mean, do not murder. And Jesus says quite clearly, murder doesn't simply happen when someone physically takes another life. It happens in your heart. It happens in your mind. It happens when you speak. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The word anger it means you're, 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 you're angry at somebody. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that you can be angry and sin not. I think there is a godly anger. If you were angry about injustice, if you were angry about evil, if you're angry about sin uh, and, and mirror God's attitude toward, that may, be, uh, sin, uh, that, that may not be sinfully inappro- inappropriate. That, that may be fine. The problem is we tend not to simply be angry about the sin. We are angry with the sinner the person who has offended us. And the anger becomes personalized. The anger becomes directed in our minds, in our hearts, against another person. And the problem is that anger has a way to simmer. It it gets on the back burner of our heart, but it's there. And then other things happen with this individual. And now we begin to build a case against him in our our hearts. And we begin to think about all the stuff they've said. And we begin to judge their motives. We're angry with them. We're angry with this unresolved conflict with someone. And Jesus even says, if that is not dealt with appropriately, that is what murder is. which means we are all a bunch of murderers. Think about that. To be angry, to be bitter, to have an unresolved conflict that festers, where you can hardly think about the person without thinking about what they did, what they said, or what they didn't say, or what they didn't do, and you're really angry with them. Well, it goes on here. It, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it says, and, and whoever insults his brother. 
again, I think it's talking about not just a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. I think it's talking about any human being. But to be insulting is to demean somebody, and that can happen in your mind. Just to think that someone is really off. Sometimes, is really, you write, sometimes you just write that person off. You're insulting to them. You, you look down on them. You look down on their intelligence. You look down on their spiritual life. You look down on what they say. You look down on what they do. And in your mind, and maybe in your words, you insult them, sometimes not even to their face. We do that, if we're honest. We write people off. We judge them. And we do nothing really to alleviate that situation. We feel quite self-righteous in our, uh, in our insulting of that individual or that demeaning of that person. And Jesus says that's murder too. And he goes on to say, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, these are with your words. You consign somebody as a fool and you just, in a derogatory manner, you judge them, you judge their character, you judge what they did, what they said, what they didn't say, what they do, and you consign them and sort of call them this, this name that you think defines who they are. And in some sense, what you end up doing when you're angry with someone or when you're insulting someone or you say, you fool, whether you say that out loud or you say that in your head, you're basically demeaning this individual who is made in the image of God. An image bearer of God and you are, in some sense, acting like God as if you have the power to judge them, to write them off, to insult them, to name call them. Jesus would say that's murder. The reason why this is such an important second building block is that you have to understand that murder starts in the heart, but you have to be honest about your own murder that you are doing in your life to other people in order to have any kind of hope to have some kind of kingdom community here or anywhere that you are if you don't deal with the murder the royals around in our, your heart. We have a, a Tuesday uh, evening prayer meeting, which I encourage you to go to. I know some, you know, if you have kids, seven o'clock on a Tuesday night is probably not the best time for you. You're putting the kids to bed. I get it. I encourage you to drop in on this prayer meeting. Uh, if you, you missed it last week, I'm sorry because it was kind of amazing. It started off kind of normal. We had a report from one of our global partners overseas, and we prayed for them. We showed a, a little video about, from the Voice of the Martyrs about the persecuted church for a few minutes. And then we began to pray. And what we were supposed to do, again, you know, we try to control everything. You know, we're going to have two people pray, and then we're going to break up into groups. And we started to pray uh, for the persecuted church, those believers who are in trouble, those believers who are in jail. And so we start praying for that. And again, we gave directions. A pastor gave directions. Two people pray, this person closed. Well, nobody listened at the prayer meeting. They kept praying. And then all of a sudden, people started to pray for the situation in Haiti, for the 17 people who've been abducted. And they started praying about that and praying for their safety, all of that appropriate. And then all of a sudden, it was, it was more than one person, but one person began to just pray completely different and blew the whole prayer meeting up. The person started to pray and said this, Lord, uh, 
You say love our enemies. I don't love those abductors in Haiti. I despise them. I hate them. And I'm wrong. Forgive me for my anger against them. Lord, on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They, you, they didn't know what they were doing. And I don't have that attitude, and you're going to have to give it to me. And the whole prayer meeting blew up. And 40 minutes later, we haven't broken into groups, and the plan that I had carefully worked out was thrown in the garbage can. Well, that's a different kind of prayer. When's the last time you actually looked in the mirror and you've got some simmering, unresolved conflict? You're angry, you haven't dealt with it, you've judged somebody and written them off. In your mind, you've called them, you know, you fool. And said to yourself honestly, as some of us did at this prayer meeting, that's murder. And I'm not following the directions of my king and the commands of my king. Well, I think all of us would probably do well this afternoon to do a little soul searching and in thinking about the ways in which you're holding something over somebody, the ways you're angry with somebody that you never really have attempted to resolve, the way you've written people off and insulted them behind their back, the way you may have talked to, with other believers about somebody else, about, well, yeah, you, you know what they said at the small group? Yeah, 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 yeah. You talk amongst yourselves. Or you've called people a fool in your mind or even verbally. And spend some time in confession to realign yourself with the king and his kingdom. That's the second building block. There's a third building block, and that is what is a practical step you can take towards reconciliation? That's what Jesus does, deals with in the rest of the text. Verse 23, he gives two illustrations. I don't think these illustrations are meant to be sort of legalistically followed. I think it's just giving a picture of what it would look like to take a practical step towards reconciliation. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's talking about, you know, you're going to worship service. He's kind of picturing the temple worship there in first century uh, Palestine there. You're on your way to, 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 to offer this gift at the altar and then you remember you've got some tension. You've got some unresolved issues with somebody, a brother. Get out of the worship service and get that resolved. Now, I don't think he literally has to do that. I, yeah, don't anyone, I, I, I know that there's probably a number of different things, that, conversations that need to happen, probably. I would bet a lot of money. Don't leave now. We'll all know, and then we'll be tempted to judge you, and it's, don't do that. I, 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 I don't think it means that if you, you have some tension, you have to leave church necessarily. But what it's saying is, don't keep coming to worship week after week after week and not deal with this situation. He goes on to talk about a court case. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Again, I, I don't think it's necessarily assuming that you're going to take a lot of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to court. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the illustration is this. If you're in a major conflict with somebody, before you get to a court of law, get the thing resolved. Have a conversation. Why? If you let something simmer, if you let some bitterness, anger, insulting words that you haven't dealt with, if you know there's tension between you and somebody else and you don't attempt to, to, to reconcile it, that unresolved situation is going to cost you and erode your spiritual life and erode your, 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 the joy that you could have in Christ. What Jesus is trying to say, I think, in both of these illustrations is if you find yourself having God having convicted you of the murder in your heart, you have some kind of an unresolved situation with somebody, you need to at least have a conversation to see if you can't get it resolved. Now, here's the problem. A lot of you are not wired to do this. I'm going to do a little informal poll here. Some of you are turtles. The minute there's conflict, you go into your shell. You wait for the conflict to be over, then you come out. Some of you are teddy bears. In the midst of a conflict, your first move is to go hug the person who's angry with you or you're angry with them and superficially get it resolved. Everything's fine, fine. You move towards the person, but nothing ever gets said. You're a teddy bear. That's okay. I love to be abused. And some of you are sharks. You don't mind a little conflict. Sharks are interesting people. When there's conflict, they move in. They move towards the person they're in conflict with, which is good. But they can also chew everybody up in their path. So let's, normally, how many of you are turtles? Raise your hand. Hi. You're turtles. All right, these are the people who are going to avoid conflict with. So when you get around these people, you can say whatever you want. They'll never confront you. How many of you are teddy bears? Yeah, these are the people you really want. You can offend them and they'll, they'll tell you how great you are. How many of you are sharks? Okay, these are the people you don't want to, don't have coffee with them after church. It's pretty simple. This isn't rocket science here, all right? What Jesus is saying is, I'm the king, I'm God, I'm going to tell you what the law actually says. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. He describes murder. It's not just physical murder. It's, it, it, it's, it starts in your mind. It starts in your heart. The reality is, if we we're honest, we're all murderers. We all do this. So he's calling us to repent, but then he's also, Jesus is also saying, if you know you are in conflict with somebody, I don't care if you're a turtle or a shark or a teddy bear. You got to move to that person and broach the subject and have what may be a hard conversation. Now, I'm not saying it should be a harsh conversation, but you got to talk to one another. Notice what the text says here. It says, if you remember, right, uh, you know, if you remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, if you kind of sense that there's a distance with, between someone, if you sense that the warm relationships you used to have is not as warm, you have an obligation to go and say, hey, it seems like we've grown apart. What's the issue? Is there something I've done? 
in humility you ask that question. But I think it also means if, 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 you've, if you've been hurt by somebody or you have questions about what someone said or your understanding of what they did or said was hurtful to you, if you let it simmer, you are gonna commit murder over and over again. You gotta go and have a conversation. And I have to tell you, I've been in four churches in my adult life, overseas in the United States, and it's all the same. We just don't practice this very well. We don't. It's a lot easier to talk about someone. That's kind of fun. Get co- come to your closest friends and they'll agree with you. Oh yeah, that person, oh yeah, they're, they're crazy. Fool, it's murder. And we don't go and have a conversation. I think the other problem is sometimes if somebody does come to you and has an issue with you, if we're going to really follow this, you can't be so defensive that you are almost unconfrontable, right? You can't make life so miserable for someone who's really taking a risk to point something else in your life and be so defensive and so angry with them that they say, well, I'll never do that again. Yeah, Jesus may say that, but that's not worth it. You be humble, meek. Remember what Jesus said, meek. The interests of the other person more important than you. So in every church I've ever been in, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that there are conversations that probably you all have needed to have for months, some of you, maybe last week. And I guarantee you, if we spend enough time with each other over the next month, there's going to be more conversations that need to be happening for us to follow what God, through Jesus, is telling us. So what I want us to do is I'm going to lead us in a time of confession. I'm going to pronounce a promise of pardon so that you murderers, me the murderer, knows that we are forgiven in Jesus. And then we're going to stand, stand and sing a song that focuses on what the ultimate kingdom is going to look like. In the ultimate kingdom, when Christ restores everything, all relationships between us and God, completely reconciled. All relationships with us and other people, completely reconciled. And since that is our future, why not get a head start and do today what we know will be our destiny in the road. So let's bow for a time of confession. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would forgive us for being murderers. Forgive us for the times we have been sinfully angry against another person. And instead of dealing with it and having a conversation and going to them and trying to resolve it, we nursed it for weeks, if not months, if not longer. Instead of going to you with this issue and asking you to help our hearts, instead of going to the person we were in conflict with, we stayed privately anger, angry, murdered people in our hearts, possibly talked to other people about this person rather than going and doing what our King Jesus says to do, which is to go and seek reconciliation. Lord, forgive us for the times that in our own minds we've insulted someone in our own hearts and minds. We've written them off. We're so sure that we're right on whatever issue it was and we just write people off who think differently. 
We respond differently to different situations, Lord. Forgive us. Lord, forgive us for calling the people fool, either in our, either verbally or in our minds and hearts. We denigrated another person who's made in the image of God. Forgive us, Lord, for not having these kinds of conversations. We've shrunk back in cowardice, out of fear. We failed to obey King Jesus. Forgive us for the times, Lord, we've had trouble forgiving someone. Instead of like you who said, when you were dying on the cross for our sins, Father, you know, forgive them. They don't even know what we're doing. We, unlike God, unlike Jesus, refuse to offer forgiveness to those who've hurt us. Lord, forgive us at times when someone was trying to tell us about how we've been hurtful or about how we said things that were not right or how our behavior might not have been best. Forgive us for being so defensive. Forgive us for not in humility listening, hearing. Forgive us for not resting in your grace so that we weren't able to honestly deal with our own mistakes and our own errors and unwilling to listen to someone tell us what we needed to hear. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we have the full forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen.